and hello to all you Metsian folk. This is the Converted Mets fan, Sam Maxwell, and you are here with a Metsian podcast. Uh, we are thrilled on this off day after a split with the Subway Series to bring you our podcast. Thank you all so much for listening. And without further ado, I'll bring on my partners in crime. And uh, we'll start with at the motherboard, the, on the motherboard this evening, we have Mike Lekulant in Brooklyn. How you doing, Mike? I'm still under the weather, but um, I'm doing all right. Oh, well, I hope you get better soon, man. You know, we appreciate Maybe a rant about the Wilpons will help uh, uh, move the phlegm around, right? That, that, you know, that might be the, the way it, it goes. You know what? And, uh, I'm even too wiped for that today. <laughs> well, I think we got some good things to talk about, and, and we'll see if uh, uh, our other, our last partner in crime agrees with me, and that is Rich Sparago in Connecticut. Rich, I, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm feeling optimistic right now. I. I I don't know why. What do you feel? Well, it's funny how um, after last night's game, I I did feel more excited than I have a right to feel. And then especially when you think about it, it was a split. They had lost earlier in the day. But there's something about beating the Yankees that, you know, that gives you a little bit of a boost. And, um, and, you know, you hear all the doom and gloom. Oh, you know, the next month they're playing all teams over 500. You know, and it's going to be the end of the Mets and all that. Well, you know what? Maybe not. Maybe you step up and maybe you just you finally do what you're supposed to and beat these teams. And nobody's saying you have to dominate them. You know, you just play 500, a couple games above, and keep yourself relevant, and then see what happens. You know, from July on. So, uh, but I'm feeling good. Yeah, I'm feeling good about the Mets right now. It's a lot better than it was a month ago when they got swept by the Marlins, right? That's for sure, and let's let's get right into it. Uh, I'll start with why I think I'm feeling good. Uh, you look at the standings, and they're only about, I'd say, five games back, in I believe, in the division. Um, and, in fact, I'm going to pull them up right now because I, I just had some technical difficulties, but um, – yeah, it, I mean they're they're about to face they're about to face uh, the St. Louis Cardinals, who they're right behind by a game in the wild card. Now, mind you, they have a lot of people ahead of them, about three teams before they're able to say they have a position, which I believe is held by the Cubs. And right now, the last time I was looking at it, things may may have changed. I'm not sure if anybody played a day game today, but the Phillies and the Braves, who are probably also tied for the division are tied for the first wild card with the Cubs following. Um, And I'll I'll loop to you first, Rich, about that. Uh, Obviously, I want them to go for the division. I think the Phillies are rather strong, but maybe also we're seeing what we we, uh, talked about before the season with how everybody in the National League East is going to beat up on each other. And I still think it's for the taking. Now, if they can shore up their bullpen, and we talked about this a lot over the last few episodes, that the Mets aren't as bad as it seems. It's just that they, they've they been losing badly on the road. They've been giving up leads, and that has a lot to do with the bullpen. It, well, clearly, right. And, you know, they, they should obviously be going for the division, which they are, and – it, it's very early. You know, we're not even at the halfway point. They've played 67 games. They still have 14 more to go until they even get to the halfway point. And I think you're seeing some good signs. And what you're seeing is 
the starting pitching has generally been good. Wheeler, with an exception, yesterday afternoon. The starting pitching has generally been very good. The bullpen has been better. I mean, Familia came in last night. He was throwing filth. He was throwing 90, upper 90s. He was spotting his, his two-seamer, you know, his sinker, his sinking fastball. Um, Lugo, Lugo is one of the best relievers in the National League. The problem is he's a short-duration kind of a guy because of, you know, that elbow situation. So he's good for an inning or two, but then he has to get a day or two off. But when he's in, did you see him last night? I mean, he was he was 97, and then he was mesmerizing them with the curveball. So, you know, the starting pitching settling in, the bullpen, I've always said, always, always said, the pieces are there. These pieces just have to perform. These are not bad pitchers for the most part. Gagno's an exception. But for the most part, they have decent people in the bullpen. So if these guys progress to their mean – and do what they're supposed to do. The offense has generally been decent. You know, some brownouts, every team has brownouts. What the Mets can then do is just execute their formula, good pitching, enough hitting, and just pile up some wins. And then come mid to late July, God willing, they're still in it. God willing, they add a piece or two as necessary. And then, then it might be a fun end of the summer. Yeah, you know, uh, I think DeGrom's been better lately. Syndergaard has definitely been better lately, which is a huge, huge uh, sign and boost for this team. Uh, but, Mike, I know we're going to talk a little bit uh, about the, the pessimistic stuff in some fashion, and that was Zach Wheeler yesterday. And you brought up that he's not having a good walk here. You know, it, 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 is, is he just bleeding fastballs over the plate? He's obviously giving up a lot of home runs. What do you see that Wheeler really needs to correct? Bleeding fastball, good way to put it. It seems that way. He's made 13 starts this year, uh, and right around 84, 85 innings, whatever it is. Uh, this most recent start marks the fifth time this season he's allowed two home runs in a game. Uh, it's also the third straight start and the fourth start in his last five in which he's allowed two home runs in a game. Uh, he's allowed... Uh, I think 11 – he's allowed 13 home runs all season. So uh, there's something there. There's something there. Uh, if you're just leaving him over the plate, you know, it is what it is. Maybe he can adjust that. But he, his e, – fact of the matter is his ERA has not dipped below four all season. It has yet to touch three. So, you know, he's given up runs at a good clip. Uh, and it's not the kind of walk year that I anticipated. I thought he was going to dazzle this year and, you know, just walk away. Uh, but it was the Mets' plan, and it was the Mets' intention to have him uh, pitch this season and, and see, you know, which way the wind blew. And right now it's uh, not blowing well for Zach Wheeler. Yeah, he just needs to tighten a lot of things up. Obviously, yesterday was just some monstrosity uh, of a game. Uh, why don't we recap the, the quick and and uh, rather simple Subway series on both ends. Uh, doubleheader, I always like that. You know, I I, I missed the I, – I was never there for the uh, scheduled doubleheaders, but I, I think that it's unfortunate that they don't do that anymore. Um, but, Rich – what were some of the good, the bad, and the ugly that you saw up at Yankee Stadium? Well, 
the first thing you have to point to for the good is you have to point to Pete Alonso. You know, that game, the, the night game, turned in the first inning. Three batters in, Alonso's, Alonso's the third hitter of the game. And he hits a pitch that was up at his eyes, but he got on top of it. He had enough bat speed to get on top of it and drive it the heck out of there. So Pete Alonso, definite, definite good. Um, J.D. Davis, you know, he had the opposite field home run. That's what he's there for. I think we, we've all seen it. The guy can't really play defense. He's probably a DH at his best position, but we don't have that in the National League. But he can hit. And, and when he's hitting home runs, he's proving his value. So, so that's another positive. And then, again, I'll point to we have to get to Vargas. I think he deserves his own segment. But Vargas had a yet another quality start. Um, and the bullpen. You know, when the bullpen has been so bad, and, and I called it last podcast, I called this a season of should-haves. If you think about all the games they should have won this year, uh, the meltdown in L.A. for one, the meltdown in Arizona for another, the 18-inning game in Milwaukee when they had the lead, you know, all those things, you regret those losses, and, and they're all on the bullpen. Well, that bullpen last night was devastating. You know, like I said earlier, Familia was lights out. It was game five against the Dodgers, Familia. Uh, Lugo comes in. Who, who the heck's going to hit him? He, he's spotting 97 and he's throwing a, a, a highest spin rate in baseball curveball curve off of that. Um, and you have Diaz, you don't have to use. So those are the positives. The negatives, I agree with Mike. I'm looking right now at the starting pitcher's ERAs, and, and guys, this makes no sense. You know, Syndergaard and Wheeler have the worst ERAs on the staff, and, and how could that be? Um, you know, Syndergaard's 445, Wheeler's 491. So... Um, the Wheeler's start is a definite concern. You know, you're going to need this guy, and um, and he's simply not not having the good so that, that would be a negative. And um, you know, and then yesterday the way they got they let they let the Yankees pour it on them. You know, you saw some of the underbelly of the bullpen. You know, the Wilmer Fonts of the world. Font comes in and he gets torched. You know, so while they have some very good bullpen pieces, some of their bullpen pieces are are still pretty bad. And and so I think that's what you see too is. They're going to need to shore up around the Gaselmans, the Lugos, the Familias, and, and Edwin Diaz. They're going to have to add better pieces around them if they want to stay competitive. So that, that's sort of my 50,000-foot view of the Subway Series. Now, I, I know that this is slightly of a, a digression, uh, but, Mike, you and I were uh, uh, talking to Neil of Rudy's Bar and Grill about the Yankees, see, he's a Yankee fan, and we were talking to him on our Yankees preview series. What I didn't realize about the Yankees were that they were third, they had the third most errors in the American League. Uh, and that really showed in the second game. You, you saw them playing very sloppy baseball. And, uh, you know, I know we're talking Mets here, but, but if they want to go anywhere, you know, everybody's talking about how good the Yankees are, but errors are not going to get you all that far, especially if your pitching's not uh, quite there like it sometimes isn't, uh, especially with, uh, I forget his first name, but Germain on the uh, uh, DL right now. Right, right about that, Sam. Uh, but it just goes to show that winning cures all, you know. They, they've got 40 wins thus far. Uh, they're battling for first place, so you know errors in the field get get overlooked. Not so by the manager, but in general talk, nobody's really you know discussing that or making that a point of issue. 
uh, uh, I'm sure if they start, you know, going into a tailspin, that'll be highlighted. Uh, I, I think the what what has aided the Yankees the most is, is having all these different players in the lineup hitting for contact. Strikeouts have been the Yankees' uh, chief nemesis over these last two seasons. And right now, those numbers are considerably down with Stanton and Judge out of the lineup. You know, when you have those two and Sanchez in the middle of the lineup, you're talking potentially 600 strikeouts. So I, I think that more than anything has been their downfall, uh, especially last season. But this year, yeah, Sam, you're absolutely right. They've been committing a lot of errors. Game two, it was on full display. But for as long as they're winning, not many people are talking about it. And, Mike, I'll stay with you, uh, speaking of which. Uh, you saw that contact-oriented play in um, uh, the uh, – God, I'm, again, blanking on the inning, but it was after the Mets took a 6 nothing lead, and all of a sudden it became 6-3. It's when the Mets fans start to bite their nails. Uh, but Jason Vargas, and this is a good segue – uh, did not let the Yankees continue to play station to station, locked it down, and then the rest of the pitching was wiped out for the remainder of the game. Well, you know what? Good job by him. Look, the guy is, after all, 36 years old. Uh, he's a veteran, so he's been in that situation before. It shouldn't have scared him, and lo and behold, it didn't. As Rich pointed out, the guy's having a hell of a year, and it's just time to give credit where it's due. Over his last four starts, he's only given up five earned runs over a total of 27 innings. Uh, I know wins and losses don't mean much, but uh, aesthetically, at least, he's 3-1 and uh, and has gone at least six innings in three of those four starts. He's got, what, 11 starts this season, and in seven of those, he's only given up two runs or less. Uh, It's almost like a DeGrom watch. Uh, In two of those starts, he's given up three runs or less. And in only two of his starts, and now we're going back to April, his second and third start of the season, in which he allowed four runs each. Uh, But since then, you know, he's just been going out there and tossing gems, you know. So credit to him. His ERA for the season is 3.68, far below Zach Wheeler's. And he's only given up five home runs all season. And like I just pointed out, Zach Wheel has given up 13 this season, and he's given up a pair and, you know, uh, four of his last five starts or whatever it was I said. So, you know, produce to Vargas. So, Rich, who are some of the players that were the unsung heroes of yesterday? Who are some of the people that we got to show to Yankee fans why we believe in this team? I'd say Jeff McNeil. I mean, he, he does nothing but hit. You know, he, he went out there at a couple of the first game. Uh, he started the second game with a double. And Jeff McNeil is, is the real deal. You know, I, th- I think we all uh, – I shouldn't say we all. I know me personally. I, my initial reaction to Jeff McNeil when he came up is, okay, this, this guy wasn't a heralded prospect. We've all seen this before. You know, a guy comes up, and for a couple of weeks he, he's, he, he looks like this guy might be something, and they all fall off the table. And there's a reason why these guys weren't prospects. I was using all those lines last year. Well, you know what? It's been a year now. It's been a solid season, and, and this guy could flat-out hit. Um, he also has the best speed on the team. I'm not sure if you saw that statistic, but 
the best speed on the team from home to first. He's faster than Rosario, faster than Gomez, so he can run a little bit. Um, defensively, of course, you know, like, like Keith would say, he's a foreign stratomatic in left field. He's never going to be a great left fielder. But at second base, he makes the plays. Left field, he makes most of the plays. He can play third base. So I'd say McNeil would be one guy. Um, you know, and then you look around. I know I, know, I mentioned J.D. Davis earlier, uh, but there's a guy who, who could flat-out hit, and, um, and so maybe he'd be another. Um, and then, you know, just looking down the line, I, I, I think if Yankee fans got, got a look at Seth Lugo, who I know I've talked about him earlier on this podcast too, but the guy is, is just fantastic. I mean, the guy is the most reliable reliever the Mets have, and that includes Diaz. So I would say those three guys would be the guys that, that the Mets had a chance to show off a little bit. Yeah, and I'll run with McNeil. I mean, it's really too bad that they couldn't hold on to that lead that he gave them uh, because it was just pretty fantastic how how for almost a year now he has just done nothing but be one of the best players in Major League Baseball. And – you know, it, it, it's there's probably there's probably a lot of people both on the the Alonzo front and the McNeil front that still aren't talking about the, uh, about these players. But last night, you know, Yankees Mets obviously gets a lot of national attention, um, and this would be a good another good segue. But I'll I'll, I'll first finish up uh, talk of Jeff McNeil with Mike, but then I'll go back to you, Rich, for my next part um, about the Subway Series. Like what? What can you say? I mean, the guy has become an uh, an unbelievable leader with this with this ball club. And 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 right now, I mean, you got to say that him and Alonzo are the other than other than Jacob Degrom, of course. And I think Jacob Degrom has become the de facto leader of this team. They look towards him. He's still the ace, even if he struggled a little bit this season. But you got to say, when it comes to that clubhouse. It's probably, uh, as of now, it's got to be McNeil and, and Alonzo. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. Uh, they're a nice combination. You know, how often do two players come out of your system and produce the way they've been producing this season? Uh, Jeff McNeil reminds me a lot of Lance Johnson, doesn't he, Rich? I mean, he just yes. swings and, and makes contact and, and just puts the ball in play every at-bat. It seems that way. Uh, the guy's just a hit machine. You know, he's not going to hit 30 home runs, but he'll make contact, and he's going to be fun to watch rounding bases, you know, doubles and triples and whatnot. So uh, I'd have to agree with you, Sam. It, this is an exciting combo, and I, I I can't reiterate how rare it is that, you know, much less one, two guys come up together, you know, and, and perform this way. So it, it's been fun. And, uh, you know, the Mets have a core in place. They really do. Uh, there's just, you know, other things that seem to distract us. And I'll loop back around because I want to give Rosario some love, but I also want to give him a little bit of grief because of the defense. But I don't want to talk about that right now. I want to talk about the Subway Series, something you brought up, Rich. Has the novelty worn off because of how often we're doing interleague play? Um, I say no because I think one way or the other, it's it's good for the city. It's good for the fans. It sells out every single time. Uh, what do you think, Rich? Uh, I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, uh, and here's why. 
is you could say it's a celebration of New York baseball and and it's fun for you know four days, two out of three years and six days on that third year, but I I think it's um, I think it has lost some of its luster. I think you know the the bloom is off the rose a little bit. When you think about it, you know back to 1997 when it started into the late 90s, it was wild when those games would go on. But but they were observing last night in the booth that. The the fan fervor is way down. It almost seems like a friendly rivalry. It almost seems like you're playing your brother. You know, you want to beat your brother, of course, but you don't hate your brother. And and it's just not, you know, it's just not the same. It's lost some of its luster. But here's my biggest problem with it. My biggest problem with it is the the inequity of the scheduling. So so take a year like this where it's not East playing East. It, it's East playing uh, Central from the National League American League Central. So you play your rivalry games. Well, the Mets' four rivalry games are against the Yankees. If you're the Braves, I don't even know who their four, four rivalry games are that they're playing a, not against the American League Central. Let's just say they're playing, I don't know who, Toronto. Toronto's awful, if you haven't noticed, right? And maybe the Phillies, are, I think they do play the Orioles for their rivalry games because of the geographic proximity. The Orioles are an embarrassment. So now the Mets have to play the Yankees four times. Those two teams are – I know the Phillies are playing the Orioles. I'm not sure about the Braves, but if they are playing Toronto, let's just say they are. They're getting four layup games. The Mets are getting four games against you know, the Evil Empire. And at the end of the year, if the division is decided by two games, you know, you're sure, you want to say it's sour grapes? Okay, fine. It's not freaking fair is what it is. You should play the same damn schedule, and they don't do it, and that's the part that gets me. You make a wild point, and I'm actually about to pull up the schedule in a moment, but but uh, go to Mike. What do you think, Mike? I can't add much more. Rich nailed it. I've never been a proponent of interleague play. You know, I'm old school. Uh, I, I was a single-digit midget in the 70s. And, you know, National League and American League were two different entities for that matter, you know, not under the auspices of MLB. They operated onto their own self. So, uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of it. I'm done with Subway Series. The only time I ever want to see them play is in a World Series. You know, should we have that kind of look? Uh, I was very happy and content with the Madison Trophies game. If they want to do anything, bring that back. At least that money went to charity. You know, it went to kids in the city. Uh, it, it meant more to me than it does now. It meant more to me then than it does now. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I mean, I don't think it it probably makes too much money for the league. It's it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, and I'm going to keep pulling pulling it up right now. Um, but Rich, uh, uh, Rosario's defense, uh, even though it had gotten a little tighter, he missed the bag, and that was a big way that opened up uh, the doors for the Yankees yesterday against Zach Wheeler. And, um, you know, I'm very, very happy with the way he's hitting right now. His average is a little bit lower, but his home run power has just uh, skyrocketed. Uh, that probably also has something to do with the balls, which we could get into in, in, in a little bit. The fact that they're hitting more home runs than they ever have. And we seems like every year we keep saying, saying uh, something new about that. Um, but what what does this kid need to do to stay sharp out there? You know, Rosario is my pound-my-head-against-the-wall player because there's so much talent there. He runs. He has power. He can hit. He's got great – you know, he's got the speed he has also helps him on defense. He has a great arm, all these things. He has every tool in the bag, right? But 
the sum total is less than the parts. Like the sum is less than, than the, uh, you know, that cliche I'm going for. If you add all the parts together, it, the sum comes out less than that. And, and why? So the pessimist says, like a friend of mine I was having this conversation with yesterday, says he's not a winner. You know, he says he's never going to be a winning player. Winning players are guys like Jeff McNeil who make the most of everything they have. Rosario's not a winner. He makes the least of everything he has. So that's pessimist. The optimist, which I've been right up until now and, and want to still be with him, says he's a very young man. He's 23 years old. You know, and, he, and this is only his second full season. I'm getting a dirty look because my daughter is not a fan of, of Rosario. Um, but the, the, the optimist wants to say, when this, give this kid three more years, only be 26 years old. He'll have so much experience behind him. The picture will come together. It's, it's like, you know, it's like tuning in a camera lens. The picture will come into focus. So the optimist wants to say that. But the pessimist is like, oh, come on, come on. And, you know, it, it's one of those things. So I don't know. I, I, the jury is out on him. Um, and the thing, Sam, to answer your direct question, hitting a baseball is the hardest thing. I just got a text from my daughter. This is the big leagues. He has no excuses. Um, <laughs> hitting a baseball is the I know my daughter's so forgiving. Um, hitting a baseball is the hardest thing to do in sports, right? And he's hitting. Okay, fine. But when, but when you're having defensive lapses, playing shortstop defensively is the same in, in single A, double A, triple A. You're standing in the same place. The concept is the same. Maybe the ball gets on you a little bit faster, okay. But why is he struggling defensively? He never did before. Everything we heard about him was he was a defensive whiz. So what the hell, man? So I don't know. Rosario... He's my Schrodinger's cat, you know. I I like him and don't like him simultaneously. I don't know which one it is. Yeah, Uh, Mike, what what do you think? I mean, it's it it's got to be something have you know in the head. I I mean, and and we have to stop listening to these people who say one player is great defensively and another player is terrible defensively. I mean. Guillaume is the only one that I could think that's kind of just been the par, you know, par for the scouting report. Uh, uh, what do you think? I'm okay with Rosario. If you think about it, Rosario is one of the few prospects that they actually uh, treated correctly in the sense that they vacated the position, gave it to him, and left him alone. He's been there since he arrived, and he hasn't necessarily been tampered with, unlike other prospects who come up and they get yo-yoed everywhere. Uh, So in that respect, you know, uh, good job by the Mets. That said, I do believe he was brought up one year too early. I think he needed just a tad bit more seasoning uh, in the minor leagues. Now, and, and the following is just pure theory on my part. The experience in Las Vegas. I think Ahmed Rosario's getting to balls that he wouldn't, normally gotten to at Las Vegas. It's a parched infield. It's hard. And baseballs have a tendency to scoot through the infield untouched. And and now that he's away from that environment, you know, he's actually getting to balls (laughs) that he wouldn't uh, ordinarily have gotten to at Las Vegas. And, uh, you know, look, he went through an episode earlier this season. You know, he went through the yips. I think he's recovered from that. I actually think he's going to be okay. I think he's a good ball player. I think he's going to get better. Uh, I, I just believe he got called up one year too early. I'm not knocking anybody for that. 
so, you know, it, it's learning on the job, on the job training, as they say. And I'm okay with it. You know, what's so funny about that is everybody is clamoring at the time for Rosario to come up. And, and you know, it, 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 we, we do this with every prospect, really. It's just bring them up already. It's the outrage culture that we've, we've uh, you know, played into. Um, but you make, you make it an outstanding point about it that, there is still something to be said for seasoning. And, and luckily the people that are being seasoned right now are not being seasoned on that, that hardened infield uh, anymore. So, uh, but by the way, and, and Rich, I'll loop back around to you since you're the one who brought it up. Uh, the Phillies, you nailed it with the Phillies. The, the Blue Jays are their rivalry. Uh, but when you said the Orioles with the Phillies, um, it dawned on me that I thought that the Red Sox were their rivalry and According to the schedule, that's correct. So, Red Sox, at least with the Phillies, they 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 have uh, you know I don't I think the Red Sox uh, are still a, a pretty quality you know defending world champion even if they they started out slower. Yeah, you're right, and I I was pulling that from my I, I thought it was a geographic rivalry with the Orioles, but so if the Phillies are playing the Red Sox, Red Sox are 35 and 34. Um, and the Braves are playing the Blue Jays. I mean, just that—that's a disgrace. I mean, the, the Blue Jays are awful. And so the Braves get four layup games. The, the Red Sox get—I mean, the Phillies get four games against a team that is, you know, coming off a World Championship, although struggling this year. And the Mets have to play the Yankees. And at the end of the year, we're going to put all this together in the standings and and try to say that it's fair. It's nonsense. It, it's come on. You know, it's like a friend of mine says, "Don't pee in my leg and tell me it's raining." You know, it, it's. It's not fair, and it's just it's not right, you know. Um, if you're playing in the years that the East plays the East, everybody plays the same competition. But in this, although the Mets play the Yankees six times, and the and the the Phillies would play them three times, and the Braves play them three times. So anyway, it, it's not it, it's inequitable, and I think this is a case where because maybe you have a few more people in the ballpark, which doesn't really even play out because Braves Blue Jays isn't going to draw any more people, but Yankees Mets will. Okay. So to get a little bit bigger gate, you know, you, you build inequity into your into your season, which just is a shame. You, know, you play 162 games, and and it's really not a true barometer because you're not playing the same competition. So I, I don't want to go off on that too much. It just it aggravates me. It always has. I, I can't say that you're not slightly right uh, with it, but, you know, I, I definitely have fun with the camaraderie of these games, and, and um I look forward to them, even though I know that if, it's funny because if you beat them, it's better than anything. If you lose to them, it's worse than anything. That's, that's what's so funny about it, but you want the opportunity. Just like I would rather the, the Mets beat the, uh, the Yankees in the World Series uh, because then they can actually say they took New York. Um, but anyway, let's, let's segue over to who they uh, really have to worry about right now, and that's the St. Louis Cardinals. And I was looking at the standings. They're five games back in the division, and they're five games back in the wild card, but they're only one game behind the St. Louis Cardinals. And uh, the Cardinals, you know, they're right there right now, uh, vying for a playoff spot as well. And uh, it's a tight central, so I'm sure they're, they're you know, trying to get ahead of the Milwaukee and, and the Cubs. Obviously, they're trying to get ahead of the Milwaukee and the Cubs. Uh shouldn't waste my breath on that one, but 
what are you looking forward to out of this series? It looks like it's a four-gamer, guys. Uh, Mike, go ahead. It is a four-gamer. Uh, Cardinals got swept by the Cubs, and now, you know, they're playing the Marlins. They won the first two games of the series, and we'll see what happens later on tonight with that season uh, finale. But what am I looking for? I'm looking for a sweep. Uh, excuse me, a split. I, I can only dream of a sweep. Freudian split there. But uh, I'm hoping for a split. We're talking about two teams teetering on 500. So you know what? When that happens, wild things go on. So I'm expecting uh, wild and crazy things over these next four days. So the Cardinals, Rich, are one game over 500 with a plus 16 run differential. The Mets are a game under 500 with a minus 14 run differential. Obviously, there's a lot of things that factor into making a 500 or so team. But I think it's weird how just, and it's basically two games uh, separation record-wise, but one game in terms of, uh, um, probably winning percentage is what they're they're looking at. Uh, how, how do you explain something like that? It's it's just funny the way like no no uh, record, no equal record is equivalent. Yeah, you're right. And um, you know the run differential statistic is always interesting because in many cases it'll line up logically. You know, good teams will have a very good run differential. You know, average teams will be about even, and, and bad teams will be on the negative side. But it doesn't always work that way. You know, you think about, um, I don't, none of us were born, but the 1960 World Series, you always hear about that, where the Pirates won the World Series, but the Yankees outscored them by some ridiculous amount. I mean, it wasn't like two runs over the seven games. They outscored them by about 20 runs. Because in the three games the Yankees won, they bludgeoned them. And, in, you know, and in the four games the Pirates won, they won by a run. So, anyway, um, I, I, run differential is a good directional statistic. You know, it, it's, not, it's not a Bible statistic. And so to get back to your question about the series against the Cardinals, it's time to win this series. You know, you're going to have in three of the four games, you're going to have Cindergaard, hopefully he's over his strep throat, Cindergaard, DeGrom, and Matt. These guys are good. You know, go out there and win those games. And, you know, yes, it's hard to sweep anybody three. It's very hard to sweep anybody four. But what about winning the damn series and, and, and having this be the beginning of making up some ground in the standings? You know, there's no reason why they can't win three out of four when you're throwing those three guys in three of the games. Not to mention, in, in the fourth game, if you're throwing Vargas or Wheeler, Vargas has been great and Wheeler really – should be. So with the kind of pitching the Mets can throw out there and the Cardinals not being any great shakes, damn, win the damn series, okay? Win, give me three out of four. You make an incredibly fair point uh, with that. It, it, it's about damn time that they start climbing out of it. You know, I was always – I actually uh, talked about 2016, and obviously it's a lot earlier in the season, but the Mets were in similar position looking up at all these teams, and it was all about taking it a game at a time. Uh, and, and I'm just getting thrilled thinking about that. You know, 2016 is still one of my favorite seasons uh, just because my arm was my, – my clavicle was broken at the time, and it was during that time apparently I needed to go on the DL uh, for the Mets to go on their incredible run. And, and But that's 
the only way you can climb out of this is you got to take it a game at a time, a team at a time. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I think that it, it's, it's funny because it, it also reminded me of the fact that Anthony Kay got promoted. Uh, and we're talking about all the, like, you know, we wanted him, at some point people were talking about Anthony Kay replacing Vargas. That's not going to happen right now. And nobody else on the roster, on the starting pitching roster, um, is, you know, uh, going to come out of the uh, the rotation. So, uh, to segue a little bit, Mike, Anthony Kay right now is obviously going to be starting for Syracuse, I'm guessing. And, and you usually know a lot more about the minor leagues than, than we do. So, I'm wondering if you can bring any insight on it and, and – my guess is that if we do end up seeing him uh, come up at any point this year, he's going to be a valuable bullpen piece, most likely. You know, what we hope that if he continues to pitch uh, as prolifically as he's been pitching, then that could be a seriously awesome piece to just insert into that really bad bullpen at some point. Well, I think he's a viable and flushing is a certainty. It's just a matter of when. Otherwise, you know, uh, I, I think you have him pitch a whole season at Double A. I like to take it slow with prospects, but Triple A, nevertheless. Uh, with Binghamton, he made 12 starts. Kept a, he maintained an ERA under two, 1.49 to be exact, and a uh, little over 60 innings pitched. So let him face some Triple A batters. Uh, and we'll see how he does. Uh, I'm sure perhaps in a month from now we'll see him in Flushing. How the Mets utilize him is going to be interesting. Uh, Sam, you're probably right. They will utilize him more than most likely out of the bullpen. Although, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him start, you know, and keeping him in his present capacity, keeping him in his comfort zone. You know, sometimes you take pitchers out of their element they're so used to starting their whole careers, and then you throw them into these relief roles. Um, some pitchers react well, some pitchers don't. I, I don't know what kind of individual Anthony Kay is, uh, you know, to say how he'll respond to that scenario. But I, I think oh, I thought the plan all along was to bring him along, and he's going to give the Mets the flexibility they desire, uh, be it in the bullpen or in the starting rotation. But somehow, some way. They're going to realign it, and Anthony Kerr will be uh, central to that. Yeah. Um, Rich, you know, we were talking about the bullpen, and it just seems like such a, you know, depending on obviously how he does in AAA, it, it seems like a no-brainer at some point. He was in AA. He went 7-3 and three with a 1.49 ERA and 12 starts. He was, and I'm reading off of the New York Post now, by the way, everybody. Uh, to cite Joseph Stazowitzki. Um I obviously butchered that name. 2000, the 2016 compensatory draft pick, 31st all overall, has allowed just 38 hits and 23 walks while striking out 70 and 66 in the third inning. Is this Daniel Murphy, Rich? <laughs> um, yeah, he doesn't bat third, though, right? Remember Murphy said that, I bat third. Um, well, well I'm, I'm sort of, to clarify, I meant in terms of the comp- uh, compensatory pick. Uh, you know what? I believe you might be right. I believe um, – well, wait. 
no, the Mets did not offer Murphy a qualifying offer. So, right. uh, no, no, they did. They did offer him. They did. They did. You're right. They. You're right. So he, he very well could be that that compensatory pick. Um, wow. But 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 with Anthony Kay, we have to. That's a very good thing to look up, by the way. Um, with Anthony Kay, I read what was it yesterday or the day before that uh, they do not intend to use him in a relief role in the major leagues. They they feel like when he does come up, that it will need to be in a starting role. So. But but that but that's fine because you could put him in the rotation if they bring him up later this year, uh, which I might not be the biggest fan of. I, I agree with Mike. I'd like to see him get a full year in uh, or most of a year in AAA. Um, but if you did bring him up, you could always move somebody back into the bullpen, so it it, it can help. You know, there's that trickle down effect, so it can help the bullpen that way. Uh, but yeah, you know, he's exciting. And and since we're talking about Anthony Kay. Can we talk about, and I don't want to get into too many details, but talk a little bit about the draft. Um, for everything I've read, and I, I became fascinated with the MLB draft this year, the people who are objective, the national writers, are saying the Mets had an excellent draft. And this Beatty kid that they drafted first uh, you know, out, of, out of Austin, Texas, out of Emerson, Texas, third baseman, the pitcher who, um, his name escapes me right now, but they got him in, I think, the fifth round. Everybody said he would have been a first-rounder based on his talent, but because a lot of teams thought they couldn't sign him, they shied away. But they say if the Mets stole this kid and can sign him in the fifth round, it's a steal. Um, everything I'm, I'm seeing is the Mets won the draft. So, And I think that's really, really important because we're talking about Anthony Kay. They have guys like Mauricio, you know, Jimenez, you know, some names we know – but let's face it, the farm system is not good. And if this draft really is what I'm reading it was, and you could begin to repopulate at the lower levels of the minor leagues, that's a huge piece for organizational stability and the ability to you know, maybe get some winning going and sustain that. So um, while we almost never talk about the draft as in baseball in general, but on this particular podcast we never do, I just thought I think it's important to give kudos where they're due and and just say that the the feeling seems to be that the Mets killed it in the draft and, and they need it. For all the heat that they were getting for losing uh, uh, some some minor leaguers in the off season uh, to some of these trades, uh, it does sound like uh, based off of what national writers, what what people in the know, bloggers. Uh, have talked about was that this was an A plus draft. And uh, before I loop over to you, Mike, I'm just going to read the first uh, 10 rounds. They took uh, Brett Beatty, a third baseman, Josh Wolf, a uh, right handed pitcher, Matthew Allen, who is the one that everybody was like, I can't That's believe the they just drafted Matthew Allen in the third round, right handed right. pitcher, Jake Magnum, a center fielder, uh, Nathan Jones, a right handed pitcher, Zach Ashford, center field, Luke Ritter, Second base, Connor Wollersheim, left-handed pitcher, Joe Genord in uh, first baseman, and Scott Oda, uh, right fielder. And actually, I'll just round out the ones who you can actually click links on. Uh, round 11, Jordan Martinson, Antoine Duplantis. Uh, sorry, um, let's go back. Jordan Martinson's a left-handed pitcher. Antoine Duplantis, center field. Blaine McIntosh, center field. Kenny Taylor, center field, Mitch Reagan, right-handed pitcher, Nick Gaddis, third baseman, and Danny Goggin, right-handed pitcher. 
And, of course, it, uh, it goes all the way up to round 40, but um, none of those players are seen as uh, worthy enough yet to have a link to click on. But um, you never know. Uh, maybe, and I'm going to pick a random name, Nick McDonald uh, might be somebody we're talking about in, in three to four years. Mike, what do you know about the draft? Uh, I'm not going to say I know anything about the draft. All I do know is that there's a whole bunch of new people in the room making these decisions, uh, and pretty much everything is right in line with Brody's narrative uh, insofar as winning now and winning later. And insofar as winning now, obviously he traded away our lower-level draft, uh, I mean uh, prospects for today's major leaguers. Uh, and now they're drafting for that, you know, future time when they find themselves winning, uh, as Brody says. So everything fits in the narrative for me. Nothing's out of line. I understand what they're doing. Sometimes it just, you know, it seems a little frustrating. But uh, I get it. I get it. I, I'm not, gonna, but I'm not going to pretend to say that I know anything about these guys. I know there was some interest uh, in some high school guys, uh, and you know. The big thing was around money, and, you know, uh, bonus money and things of that nature. So uh, the draft has become a poker game, so to say. It's not as cut and dry as it used to be. So that's, that's about all I'll add to that. Well, if uh, it, you know, obviously these players need to play now. Uh, um, and I'm going to look at it. Mike, I'll segue back to you. Uh, Brooklyn starts in two days. And I will let you know who we're going to see in one second. Uh, and before we segue to our historical elements of the uh, the podcast, what are you looking forward to most out of the Cyclones this year? Oh, I'm just looking for another, you know, season by the beach, man. You know, that's a great place to be come summertime, especially on a Friday night with fireworks over by the seaside. What am I looking forward to? You know, the Cyclones have, have spoiled us. Uh, they've, they've piled up competitive season after competitive season. Uh, we haven't won a championship since our inaugural year in 2001. It would be nice to get back to the championship round and actually win a second. So uh, if I have any aspirations, that would be it. But, uh, you know, it's just a lot of fun. They're usually over 500. They're usually vying for a, for a playoff spot. And you can't ask for much more than that. What do you know about whether this is Andy, the Andy Chavez, who is a coach for Edgardo Alfonso. I believe it is. I believe it's Andy the Cat Chavez, I believe, is in the Mets organization as a coach. (laughs) Andy the Cat Chavez. (laughs) It is him. Uh, uh, Looks like he'll be bench coaching, honestly. Sorry, it's just uh, a, if anybody just, was rich, just, do you want to take? Do you want to take that? What with Andy? Um, hey, look, you know I have no problem with him being in the organization. I, I like the fact that, you know, when you look at some of these teams and they have these guys who were in the organization as players and they're minor league coaches, and, and it just builds a culture. Look at the Cardinals. I mean, as much as we hate hearing this, I shouldn't say we again. I say I hate hearing this, uh, the cardinal way is this, and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know how you get there? You get there because you have consistency and continuity, and you have guys who are brought up that way, and they, when they're done playing, they teach other guys how to play that way. So 
probably the reason I hate hearing it so much is a jealousy factor. And if the Mets could get there and say, look, this is what we're all about as an organization, we have people who played for us who are now coaching, like Alfonso and Chavez and, uh, you know, Frank Viola was for a while. Sure, you know, that, that's a great thing. That, that's a fantastic thing. Um, Chavez, and, Chavez never yeah. did stop playing. He was in the Atlantic League for the last couple of years. Right, right, exactly. And um, But just, you know, I, <laughs> we're kind of having fun on this one, on this podcast. I'll throw this out. I don't know how you guys feel about this, but one of my – many hot buttons with the Mets is they've, in my opinion, they've got to stop showing the Chavez catch. That was one of the worst nights in Mets history. Okay. <laughs> they, in 06, right. In 06, they dominated the national league dominated. They had a golden ticket to the world series. It was a foregone conclusion in many minds, including my own. And that night they were eliminated by an inferior team. Every time I see the Chavez catch, I don't see Andy making a catch over the wall, turning a double play. I see Yadier Molina's home run. That's what I yeah. think about. And I, it's like, yeah. it's like dreaming about spiders crawling on you. I scream. It's like, no, stop. Make it stop. Yeah. I can't take it, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and uh, before I go to you, Mike, about that, uh, I was thinking about it when I saw something about Dave Malicki. That, that happens a lot with net moments. Dave Malinke, uh, uh shuts down the Yankees for the first game ever of the Subway Series, but we lose the series to the Yankees. Uh, uh, David Wright hits a home run in game three, but we lose the series. Andy Chavez makes a catch, but we lose the game. It, it's, it's a lot of things. It, it's about, I think it's both, it's bittersweet because it represents what is, uh, a big part of the metaphor uh, of being a Mets fan in that you have to soak up the sweet moments because there's misery, misery around the corner. And that's really a metaphor for life. Uh, mm-hmm. Being a Mets fan is an uncommon experience, man. It's very <laughs> unique. Very unique. So uh, I just wanted to wrap up this segment uh, before we move on to the historical elements of it. Um, and hopefully I can see whether the the uh, uniform the Mets uniform numbers on Ultimate Mets is working because it was crashing for me before. Uh, but the Cyclones roster doesn't seem to be having uh, have been released yet. Uh, maybe I'm wrong about that, but I can't find it on no. their page. But maybe they have an update. Yeah, no, they, they still wait. That's a that's a last minute thing. Uh, and plus, with the way I've been feeling, you know, I haven't been trying to keep on top of it because you see who's potentially going to get promoted and who's not, and then you look at the draft and you can get a good picture of what's going on. But the way I've been feeling over the last nine days, I haven't even bothered to look, so I'm a little bit uh, unknowledgeable in that event. But by tomorrow, the schedules, uh, excuse me, the roster should be out. Well, I can also confirm that Anthony Kay was indeed the Daniel Murphy compensatory pick. So yeah. uh, these, it's just funny the way guys, the cycle of all this works. Some of these guys are last-minute signings as well, you know. Right. So there, that's, there's that's still there's, there's still determinations to be made to see who's going to go to Kingsport, who's coming to Brooklyn, uh, whose parents are willing to allow their children to play a full season versus a short season. Believe you me, that goes on. 
you know, uh, considering these kids who are still playing college uh, tournaments and things of that nature, you know? Good point. Um, before we wrap up and we move on to number 28, um, Rich, like, is there any last things that you want to talk about regarding the uh, 2019 New York Mets? Well, so what, what's hot right now, right? So um, what I want to see is the question that keeps getting thrown out there is will they be buyers or sellers? And Francesca says they're going to be buyers no matter what, that they're going to hang in there and they're going to be buyers. Well, okay. Obviously, the next month is going to go uh, is going to play a very big role in that. But I'm very interested to see what they do. Um, you know, they could take three distinct paths. You know, they, they could be buyers, they could be sellers, they could do nothing. And um, and I'm not even sure, being that it's the Mets, I'm not even sure that the record will necessarily dictate that because, you, you know, Brody's like, come get us, we're a team to beat, all this kind of stuff. So maybe there are a couple games under 500 at the deadline, and he just refuses to sell because that would be a sign of waving the white flag, and, you know, that's not consistent with what he had said earlier. So I think it's going to be a fascinating trade deadline, and that's just what's on my mind. It's a very good point. Uh, what about you, Mike? It's going to be a struggle to see what they do with the 500 mark, you know, and I think that'll dictate what they do at the, at the uh, trade deadline. Being buyers, easier said than done. Uh, in order to be buyers, you got to be willing to spend money, even a little bit of money. So we'll see unless, the, you know, a transaction is going to come at the expense of other players. That remains to be seen. But uh, they can't continue along this path. I'll just reiterate, Sam, what you've been saying over the last couple of podcasts. Their road record needs to improve. They need to shore that up, and Brody definitely needs to uh, make a move to bolster this bullpen. Otherwise, you know, the hitting, it comes and it goes. But for the most part, uh, it's what's been keeping the Mets afloat. I still say that. The pitching is coming around. Mickey's extending his starters a little bit more. Three cheers to Vargas. And, uh, you know, if everyone just picks it up uh, just, a, just a tad bit, you know, uh, we're talking we're talking a different ball game. As you, have you, excuse me, as you've already pointed out, nobody's running away with, with uh, the division. It can still be had, and uh, they can do a lot of damage before the trade deadline. Speaking of damage, I'll finish with this. Uh, um, Pete Alonso and his potential to be an all-star. Rich, he's obviously right there in the voting. I don't believe he's actually currently leading first-place voting, but, uh, I mean, the way his numbers are going, you've got to think that if if he does continue to, to hit this way, and like you said, he's adjusting. I mean, he's had trouble hitting that high ball and he absolutely crushed it the other day um he just seems to have a way to take whatever they're giving him and respond accordingly uh uh you know the average was dipping a little bit but then he picked it back up Uh, i i I think he's certainly going to be an all-star probably going to be in the home run derby uh uh and let's round out this entire uh segment with uh pete alonzo well you know, he's second in the National League in home runs, and if he's not on the all-star team, I demand a recount. Now, he might not be voted in as a starter because 
you know, let's face it, outside of New York, how many people know the name Pete Alonso, know the fact that he has 22 home runs and he's second to Yelich in, in the National League in home runs? Maybe not everybody. So, okay, fine. And if he's not elected in by the fans, which is the dumbest thing anyway because it should be voted on by the coaches, but regardless. So, But he needs to be on the team, and I can't see any reason why he wouldn't be. You know, thinking people make these decisions for the reserve players, and how can you not have the guys second in the league in home runs? So, And I will tell you one thing about Pete Alonso. I want to do a huge mea culpa here. Um, I, I thought he was going to be a disaster. I mean, I thought he was going to be a guy who couldn't play the position, he was going to bat 200 and maybe hit 20 home runs and be, you know, strike out a ton. And, and all those things are basically wrong. Uh, sure, he strikes out a little bit, but, you know, he's hitting, I think, 265-ish. So it's certainly a commendable average. He's hitting the living crap out of the ball. And that defense around first base, you know, he's not Keith Hernandez, but he's not bad. He, he digs balls out of dirt. Like that play Hechevarria made last night when the ball knocked him over. Hechevarria, ball knocks him over. He gets up. Great play, Hetch. Great play. But. The throw was in the dirt, and Alonzo scooped it on the back end. And, and sure, it gets, it gets obliterated by the fact that Hetcher made the great play, but that's the kind of thing. He makes those plays. And I'll say one more thing that I just saw that I want to share with you guys. I'm watching the Braves game, and a scroll came on the bottom that the Padres have sent Chris Paddock, the big mouth, to single A. I, I had to read that twice. What is up with that? Um, he got shelled by the Yankees about two weeks ago. But they just sent him to trip to single A. I want to find out more about single that. A. Yeah, Mr. Big Mouth really saying that. Uh, off. Yeah, he thinks he's better than Alonzo. Well, you're in single A, dude. Well, so that sounds been, like. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Mike. No, I was going to say that sounds like discipline to me. Me too. Uh, Padres demotes. Uh, this is what CBS Sports is saying two, from two hours ago. Padres demote stud rookie Chris Paddock to minors in effort to curb workload. But single A? <laughs> like, that's not what, – what are we thinking here? I mean, um, and, and, but, but real quick, he's uh, 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 Pete Alonso is ninth in RBIs, Mike. Ninth in RBIs in, in the major leagues. That's good. And he's second in – Home runs, as Rich says. Here's, here's a couple of uh, and, and and let me let me also let me also state we're talking the majors here, not the National Right now, here's a couple of Debbie Downer statistics. Uh, sorry to be that person, and I give full credit to our t- our Twitter friend Kuzman 2.0 because I saw his tweet his tweet and I retweeted it. Here's some statistics on Alonzo. His batting average with runners on base. 231, nine home runs. The batting average with runners in scoring position, 196, four home runs. Batting average with runners in scoring position with two outs, 091, zero home runs. Batting average, or excuse me, let's just say, what has he done with the bases loaded? He's 0 for 3. Uh, with nobody on base, he's batting 272 with 13 home runs. What say you, Sam? Uh, young player. Um, I mean, you know, it, it's it's clear that he's gotten some hits 
uh, one way or the other. And, and you know, it's, I guess I'm a little shocked by hearing those numbers because of the RBI total. Because you're not going to get 49 RBIs uh, by just hitting solo home runs. So, you know, I'll, I'll pass it on to Rich with that. I'm glad you said that before Rich you take over because as a rule of thumb, I always subtract home runs from RBI totals. It gives me a better picture of how many runs they're driving in. Well, think about it. You know, think about it. In those tight situations, you know, men on base, men in scoring position, men in scoring position, two outs kind of a thing, bases loaded, pitchers bear down. You know, pitchers, those are situations where pitchers are bearing down, and that's where Alonzo's youth works against him. And um, that's probably consistent with a lot of things we're seeing. You know, he started out hot. It seemed like the league had a book on him, and, um, and, and he had that slump for a while, and now he's, he's come back around. He's adjusted back, and we're probably going to see more of that. You know, league adjusts, Alonzo adjusts. League adjusts, Alonzo adjusts. He gets pitched tougher, you know, um, in, in those situations. Well, he's got to find it in him to find a way to not let that happen anymore. And, you know, he's, he's less than a half a season in the major leagues, and I think based on what we've seen, we have every reason to believe he will adjust to it. And then think about this, too, though. I don't have the exact statistic in front of me like the ones Mike just had, but how many home runs does he have off of relief pitchers? Well, that, that's a double-edged sword. Is he hitting these, and he's hitting them after the seventh inning, as we've seen. Um, is that he's hitting them off of the underbelly of some of the bullpens, or because he's hitting these home runs seventh inning and beyond, is he hitting some off of closers you know, and off of setup men? So interesting stuff to think about. Yeah, no, I think it's been a great story. Uh, I, I think it's been a story that's gone underspoken throughout baseball this season. Definitely. That, yeah, that's for sure. Although, <laughs> I'm not sure if you guys watched the Fox broadcast, but Joe Girardi was almost like a cheerleader when, when he hit a home run on Saturday night. Uh, he he finally hit one out, and Joe Girardi was like, there it is. <laughs> he said something like that. Um, and, and Rich, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> I know we know what you think of Girardi <laughs> in terms of managing Mets, but just wanted to point that out there. He 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 got some national attention the other night, but um, yeah, I think that'll do it for our uh, uh, non-historical segment or, or current history, if you will. Uh, and we're gonna loop over to 28, and um, I'll start with you, Mike. And you brought up a name that you believe your generation will most certainly link uh, to number 28 forever. Uh, I obviously thought Daniel Murphy seems to have definitely taken the modern uh, mantle when it comes to number 28. Uh, Who are some of the names that that really pop out to you on, on this list? Well, the person you speak of, without a doubt, is John the Hammer Milner, uh, a standout for the Mets in the 70s, particularly that 73 season. Second autograph I ever got uh, as a Mets fan. John Milner is easily within my top six because after my top four, uh, it's a tie for like, you know, 20 people vying for the fifth spot. (laughs) So, but John Milner is safely within my top five, top six players of all time. Uh, sweep, swing, lefty, played first, played outfield. Uh, 
again, played for that 73 team. When Kingman came to the team, he was a fine compliment to Dave Kingman. Uh, can't say enough good things about him. Passed away way too early. Uh, Rich, John Milner? Well, you know, he was the hammer junior, right? He was, he was, because uh, Henry Iron was the hammer, and the Mets had their own hammer. And um, when he came up, I believe it was 72. It, it, wow, just wow. You know, as, as, a, as a little tyke, you know, in my fledgling years, or starting to think about baseball, here was this young guy who was, you know, hitting home runs, and he was exciting and all of that. And, um, you know, one of the things about Milner, too, is he played a lot of left field. He played first base in left field because the Mets had a lot of first basemen. They had Crane, Poole, the other guys. So Milner did what he had to do to get playing time. And, and yeah, you know, he, he was a young, vital, vibrant player and a very exciting one. Uh, other names on this list, uh, let me see. If we're trying to keep it old school. Wally Backman was the number for a year in 1980. Uh, you know, we just know him to be the epitome of hustle and grit. And, uh, you know, for those who haven't caught on yet, he is the manager of the Long Island Ducks of the Atlantic League. Get out there and give him a, give him a shout-out. Uh, otherwise, I'll pass it to you, Rich. Well, okay. So so I look at this list, and, um, you know, there are some names that – all right, I'll, I'll try to be quick because I want to talk about a few of them. Bobby Jones, um, the guy was basically um, an average pitcher his whole career. I don't have statistics in front of me, but he was no great shakes. But we all know in game four against the San Francisco Giants in 2000, he pitched a one-hit complete game shutout in an elimination game. I mean, could you imagine today a pitcher even being allowed to go the far? I think it was a one nothing or 2 nothing final, by the way. The Mets didn't have a huge lead. And Bobby Jones goes out there the day after the Agbayani home run in extra innings to give the Mets a 2-1 to series lead. He goes out there, and he goes the distance, a one-hitter on a team that had Barry Bonds and, and puts the Mets into the LCS. So Bobby Jones, you know, kind of a nondescript career. When the Mets were, were bad, he was the best pitcher they had, but that didn't mean he was great shakes, you know, so Bobby Jones. Um Remember Tommy Herr. A lot of people will forget that Tommy Herr had a cup of coffee as a Met. Uh, Tommy Herr was one of the hated St. Louis Cardinals, but uh, when his time was done there, he came came to the Mets in 1990 down the stretch run. And, um, you know, he, he wasn't the same Tom Herr, but he was a good, solid defensive second baseman who could hit a little bit. So Tom Herr. Um, and who else can we talk about on here? You know, and let's talk about Murphy. Um, I just want to say this about about Daniel Murphy. We all know that at the end of the day, it wasn't the right thing to do, you know, to let him walk. Um, But I'm going to take another mea culpa here. I thought it was the right thing to do. In 2015, after that amazing playoff run, I said to myself, you're never going to get that much out of Daniel Murphy again, ever. He's just that he maxed out, you know, he's not a home run hitter. Just take the money and run, and don't lock this guy up for multiple years because he just can't—he just can't continue that. And boy, was I wrong! And not only did he continue it, but he stuck it in the Mets' face for years and continues to do it. So um, Murphy was a guy that you loved as a Met, and at least from my perspective, when he when he left, it's like, well, he wanted to stay, but the you know the Mets didn't want him, so you can't really blame Murph. To a guy who's villain number one in New York now. I mean, it's enough with this guy. 
you can't let him continue to beat the crap out of you and, and laugh at you in the process. So kudos to Steven Matz for throwing up and in on him. That should have been done years ago. <laughs> I'm right there with you, Rich. Uh, I, you know, I don't look back and I don't dwell, but, man, his, he, he's really stuck it to the Mets. I think it's funny. Mm-hmm. Now, every time I think, like, oh, the Mets should have signed him, I just see his defense. That uh, you know, he had some moments where he 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 was really like Daniel Murphy about some some spectacular plays, and it always thought I always thought to myself, you know, oh, he's really coming around. But you know, I always say like, get in front of the ball, and it's the game four of the World Series. Get in front of the ball. Now, there's a lot of things that I gave Terry Collins crap for with that inning. Uh, I don't think Tyler Clifford should have been anywhere near the eighth inning, and, and Terry was married to that at that point. Um, I thought Addison Reed should have – it was clear that Addison Reed was taking the, the – uh, was was much – pitching much better at the time. Um, but Daniel Murphy put the exclamation point on that inning. And uh, I saw a tweet the other day where uh, I think it was Toronto was – there was a lot of fans who wouldn't leave and obviously were, you know, staring at the, the field, uh, shell-shocked as to what happened. And somebody said, it looks just like after game four of the World Series in 2015. And so you really, like, like Murphy's made them pay, but you still can't necessarily say that he should have been on the team. I don't know. It's, it's, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, wishy-washy about it one way or the other because – it's such an ingrained, awful moment of my Mets lowlights uh, that it, it's hard for me to say that it wasn't the right decision to let him walk. So uh, when I look at the list, I uh, totally think uh, John Milner. This is the type of list, guys, where you could really use Greg Prince on a podcast. <laughs> he would have... He would have something about Sherman Jones, Carly Wiley, Bill Hepler, Amos Otis, which is a name that I've heard of before and was uh, number 28 for all of 1967. Uh, Bobby Valentine, his second go-round as a New York Met in 1984. Scott Strickland is a name that I've heard of. Jeff Conine, obviously not known as a Met, but wore the number briefly in 2007. Sandy Alomar. And to round it out with uh, the most recent ones, <clears throat> our first baseman, James Loney of 2016, Travis Teheron, who Mike reminded me uh, before we got onto the podcast, is still in AAA. Um, I thought he was off the, the, the uh, Mets. Uh, Philip Evans, and then hopefully one day we're talking about the great J.D. Davis being the all-time number 28. Um and without further ado, let's round it out to our last word. Uh, uh, thank you all for, for listening to tonight's podcast. We appreciate your listenership every single week that we get a chance to do this. And uh, without further ado, let me pass it on to Mike for his last word. I'm going to keep it the same. Let's go Mets. Uh, let's let's get over 500. You know, let's let's get to the All Star break in relatively good shape. That's it. That's it. I'm just gonna stay optimistic between now and then. I'm thinking short term. Same. 
How about you, Rich? Well, that old cliche, the fierce urgency of now, and that's what I feel. You know, the Mets have done this um, two-step dance for 67 games. They're a game under 500. You know, a couple wins, a couple losses, a couple of gut-wrenchers, a couple of, oh, great, the Mets are coming back, okay, all that. Or you know what? The fierce urgency of now. Let's stop that nonsense and, and go on a, you know, of the next 25 games, give me 15 and 10. Let's go. It, it, it's time. It, it's no longer. It's getting late early, as Yogi used to say. So, so let's do it now. The fierce urgency of now. Same. Tighten it up. That's. I'm gonna do it. Tighten up with Archie Bell and the Drells. I think I might have used this last time, but uh, that road record. Just that road record's got to tighten up. Um, I think baby steps. They went into Yankee Stadium and took the split, making them 14-23. and 23. Uh, uh, It's kind of par for the course, but you got to take baby steps. And especially with uh, Yankee Stadium, where they could have easily and looked like they might for a second give that lead up again, they didn't in the second game. And uh, that was thrilling. I'm happy. Uh, it, it's nice that at the end of the day, uh, the Empire State Building, just like Dominic Smith said he wanted it to be, was orange and blue. Uh, didn't even have a chance to be uh, navy and white, if you will. So, uh, yeah, that's it. Take on take on the Cardinals. Get that uh, that series win, as we've been saying. And there's only one way to finish it. And since I usually finish it that way, I'm going to pass it on to my compadres. And Mike already said it, so I'll go to Rich. Let's go Mets. Let's, Let's go, go Mets. Mets. Everybody. Thank Have you a great guys. night. Have a good one. Bye now. Good night.